X-Ray. Welcome to The Local, your daily dose of hometown news and democracy. It's getting close to Halloween, but it's not Halloween. I'm Jefferson Smith from Portland, Oregon. It is Wednesday, October 28th. As we all face the impacts of COVID-19 and the country votes in one of the more impactful elections in U.S. history, X-Ray is here to give you information you need in The Local to help us get through this time together. We do rely on your support. Of course, there's no requirement to give to a nonprofit radio station, but the cool thing is that people do do it, people like you. So please chip into the station that supports you. Join the family at xray.fm slash donate or call 503-233-9729. That's 503-233-9729. Another way of saying it, by the way, 503-233-XRAY. Today, back in the day, October 28, 1922, Italian fascists led by Benito Mussolini marched on Rome and took over the Italian government. The march itself involved only 30,000 men with black shirt militias placed strategically around the country. But the Italian king and liberal prime minister feared civil war, so they handed over power to the fascists. Mussolini, supported by the military, the business class, and the right wing, eventually technically seized power in a constitutional way. The dictatorship was made possible by public authorities who were unwilling to stand up to fascist intimidation. And Mussolini was dictator of Italy until his assassination in 1945. Today, back in the day, October 28, 1947, Oregon Governor Earl Snell died in a plane crash. Secretary of State Robert Farrell Jr. and President of the Senate Marshall Cornett also died in that same plane crash. Governor Snell was a troubling figure in Oregon history, especially when it came to race and property rights. He was an avid supporter of Japanese-American internment during World War II. A Republican, he supported the dismantling of the New Deal and promoted a pro-business anti-union agenda. He sponsored a law to deny Japanese non-citizens property rights and to prosecute other landowners for allowing others of Japanese descent to occupy or work on their land. After serving two terms as Secretary of State, Snell challenged the sitting governor, a progressive Republican, in the 1942 primary. That was Charles Sprague. And in 1947, journalist John Gunther in Inside the USA described Snell as genial, mediocre, and perpetually on the fence. Not long thereafter, on October 28, 1947, the governor, the Senate president, and the Secretary of State were flying on a one-day goose hunting trip at the Warner Valley Ranch, and a low cloud ceiling apparently caused the pilot to misjudge the safe altitude, and the plane smashed into a remote mountain on the Fremont National Forest. Shortly thereafter, the legislature enacted a law prohibiting the state's top executives from traveling on the same plane together. It was believed Snell was readying himself to run in the 1950 Republican primary for the U.S. Senate against sitting Senator Wayne Morse. As for the law to deny Japanese non-citizens property rights, the Supreme Court later ruled that law to be unconstitutional. Today we will have your Quick 6 News headlines, and we have an interview with United States Senator Ron Wyden. We'll talk about COVID-19, the confirmation of Amy Coney Barrett, and what it might mean for the future of the Supreme Court, and Senator Wyden's thoughts on why Mitch McConnell blocked COVID aid before the election. X-ray. First up, it is time for today's Quick 6 Local Rundown. The first federal charge has been brought since Portland police officers were deputized in September. Last month, 56 Portland officers were federally deputized in response to a far-right rally held in Portland on September 26th. The Department of Justice of the United States extended those deputizations until the end of the year, causing city officials, including Mayor Ted Wheeler, to deem those deputations or deputizations illegal. Wheeler has since ordered the police bureau to ignore those deputations and act as they would otherwise. And now federal prosecutors are bringing charges against an 18-year-old Hillsborough resident who allegedly assaulted an officer during a protest outside the ICE building October 7th. Video from the night shows demonstrators using umbrellas to shield themselves from tear gas and impact munitions. 
And as an officer attempted to arrest the protester in question, the protester allegedly jabbed their umbrella into the officer's chest. No explanation has been given for why federal charges are being pursued, even though Multnomah County has an open case on the incident. Your daily dose of coronavirus data, 391 new cases, nine new deaths. Multnomah County and Marion County with the two highest case counts, 72 each. And in Oregon's prisons, COVID-19 is spreading at 10 times the state's average rate. Crowded conditions, lack of mask wearing is accelerating the spread of COVID-19 in prisons across the state. More than 1,200 prisoners have tested positive, 16 have died. 13 of those deaths in the last two months. 297 prison workers have also tested positive. And in response, over a dozen defense attorneys have filed complaints against the Oregon Department of Corrections citing deliberate indifference. Nationwide, about 10% of the U.S. prison population have tested positive for COVID-19. With Election Day less than a week away, Mingus Maps has a fundraising lead on incumbent Chloe Udaly. Maps has outraised Udaly by over $80,000 in that city council race. Maps has raised over $374,000 compared to Udaly's roughly $293,000. They have about the same median contribution, about $50, but the Maps campaign has about 250 more individual donors. Udaly's campaign spokesperson, Damon Mott Story, says that a lot of the funds come from, and I am quoting, big developers and realtors. Their other, quote, wealthier voters tend to support MAPS. And Jessica Elkin, a spokesperson for the MAPS campaign, rejected that claim, said that only 6% of MAPS donors work in real estate. I don't know. And 6%, it's more than 5%. Polling from earlier this month gave MAPS a nine-point lead, but also found a huge 40% of voters were undecided. Meaning, I guess we'll find out after the votes are cast who wins. Oregon lawmakers are drafting new bills that target doxing and the posting of mugshots. Doxing, the posting of someone's personal information online, has long been a tool of some activists. Anti-fascist groups routinely post the addresses of alleged neo-Nazis. And during the summer's protests, conservative pundit Andy No posted dozens of protester mugshots to Twitter, causing some of those protesters to be harassed or even fired from their jobs. Now, legislators from the Joint Committee on Transparent Policing and Use of Force Reform are drafting two bills aimed at addressing these issues. Remember that committee? Again, I'll say the name. Joint Committee on Transparent Policing and Use of Force Reform. The first bill would make it a misdemeanor to post personal information, quote, with the intent to harass, humiliate, or injure. The law would make exceptions for law enforcement and the media, as well as disclosures that serve a lawful public interest. Violators of that law could face up to 364 days in jail and a fine of a little over $6,000. A second bill would ban law enforcement from releasing mugshots to the public unless there's a public interest to do so, such as an ongoing search for a suspect. The hope is that the law would make it more difficult for activists to obtain and share mugshots online. Both of those bills expect to hit the floor in the next legislative session in 2021. Historic cemeteries in Oregon can no longer allow the Confederate flag Decision made by the Oregon Commission on Historic Cemeteries. There is such a commission that helps oversee over 1,500 historic cemeteries registered in Oregon. Last Friday, they voted unanimously to disallow the flying or placing of the Confederate flag on grave sites, putting a cap on discussions that began in July. Bev Clarno, Secretary of State, also the chairperson, said that visitors to historic cemeteries should feel safe and welcome, but stated the commission has no real way to enforce that rule. The unanimous decision is in line with other institutional moves to ban racist symbols. And the good news is, Oregon's first coronavirus patient has returned to work. As far as we know, 46-year-old Hector Calderon was the second person in the country to catch the virus through community spread. He was also one of the first patients to receive remdesivir, the experimental COVID-19 treatment, and has since gotten FDA approval. 
Calderon's case is considered unique. The Hillsborough resident didn't have prior contact with someone known to be infected, nor did he travel to any countries with an outbreak. During his hospital stay, Calderon remained on a ventilator for 60 days, spent most of his time in intensive care. He was discharged in early May. We talked about that after spending a total of 71 days in the hospital. And now, Oregon's first COVID-19 patient has returned to work at Forest Hills Elementary School. According to the principal, he's doing well. And that is today's Quick 6 Local Rundown. X-Ray. It has been a stressful stretch in this Senate session. Fighting for COVID stimulus, ensuring safe elections, and facing a rushed Supreme Court appointment to replace Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Oregon's senior Senator Ron Wyden joins Jefferson Smith with an update and hope for what comes next. Three of the topics I know we want to talk about will be the election will be COVID and will, of course, be the confirmation of Amy Coney Barrett. But anything else just on you, how you do, how you're doing, how your family's doing, how you're seeing constituents doing, just check in first. How are things? Well, I think uh, everybody's concerned about the virus spiking again. And the fact that Donald Trump basically kind of put up the white flag of surrender here in the last few days, I, I just think really has, you know, a lot of, lot of people saying we've, we've got to get on top of this. I mean, we all know that we're looking at what amounts to a third wave. We're getting to the colder weather, family holidays. And then you have the president of the United States saying, hey, we can't control it. Now, today his own public health people Um, contradicted him and said, look, we can control it. We're not saying it's going to be 100%, but public health people are pretty consistent with respect to masking and other requirements, what they think needs to be done. When I first heard the quote, the sort of white flag quote, that we can't control it quote, when I was being charitable, I thought, well, maybe they meant it sort of like people used to say about Michael Jordan, right? You can't control him. You can only hope to contain him, right? But then when I pair that with Mitch McConnell's decision to gavel out the session to make sure there's going to be no package prior to the election, how did you take that look at both of those things? And it does seem like, hey, let's just let this thing happen. What's the scuttlebutt in the Senate? What are your colleagues saying? Were you surprised by that uh, By that pair of events? Well, I've, I've never been surprised at Uh, how Mitch McConnell can be so totally consumed by politics, because that is really Mitch McConnell, a quintessential political person. And he made the judgment call that for purposes of playing this hand that he knew isn't particularly good, the way to be strongest in the last week is to have this um, ideological win with uh, with the judge, with Amy Barrett. And uh, there's no question that it is an ideological win because on the basis of what Donald Trump said his judicial nominees will do, that provides an opportunity for the far right to have wins at the, at the court that they could not achieve on the floor of the Congress from their elected representatives. And that might be the biggest thing for us to talk about are the court dynamics. Let's stick on COVID just for a moment. Uh, what are the uh, consequences of this? Maybe there's a chance for a lame duck session and a package before there's a new president and a new Senate and new Congress. 
Uh, maybe there's, maybe there is that option, maybe there's that possibility, but it still seems that there could be an economic and human toll in the meantime. What are you hearing from constituents or experts or colleagues or staff? There's no question that there's a human toll. And, you know, I've been home um, for weeks and weeks now over the last few months, whether it's uh, fires, when we had the break because had the Republican senators, uh, uh, come down with COVID. Uh, I've been out listening in every corner of the state. The uh, last uh, uh, few weeks, I've had a virtual town, town hall in Eastern Oregon, at the East, in Eastern Oregon at the East Oregonian. I was at uh, the Cascade campus uh, in Central Oregon. And folks, there are two things I heard. One, the number one thing is a COVID package because they want to deal with the virus. They want to deal with evictions. They want to deal with the fact that there's got to be some help for people trying to make rent and buy groceries and to help our small businesses who are just beside themselves. I mean, they are beside themselves, Jefferson, about the prospect that they'll lose their business if they don't get some relief. What was the policy gap? I heard you answer one of the questions I had, which is what was the political analysis? And what I heard you say is, well, they'd rather the headline be all about Amy Coney Barrett, all about confirming a judge, all about transforming the American judiciary over the last four and over the last 40 years. But the, and there might be even more to the politics as we're talking about, but even on the policy, what were the, what were the important things that you think kept uh, McConnell from agreeing to some degree of a package that you and your colleagues and that, uh, that the, your colleagues in the House might have been able to agree with as well? Like, again, Mitch McConnell was looking for ideological trophies. Yeah. For example, he wanted some huge liability fix, you know, for these like meat packing plants where they knew somebody had a serious health problem. They said, oh, you know, back to work. And uh, so Mitch McConnell just did not uh, want to be a constructive player here. In fact, to me, this was all kind of a choreographed Republican kind of setup. I mean, Steve Mnuchin, the Treasury Secretary, and Donald Trump. Donald Trump goes, we want a bigger package than even the Democrats do. We are all in. We want a big package. We're very serious about it. He knew uh, Mitch McConnell wasn't going to do that. Mitch, Mitch McConnell, um, when People who are out of work through no fault of their own can't pay their bills and, and can't buy groceries. Mitch McConnell basically said, I'll give them a slice. I'm not going to give them the full loaf that they need in order to be able to pay for necessities. So, Senator, are you saying that you think that McConnell was never going to pass a package? You think that this has been kind of just for show for the last several weeks? I, I think it has been Mitch McConnell's intent for months now to basically do as little as possible to pretend that he was working in good faith, but to never come close to meeting the kinds of needs in terms of paying rent, groceries, kids' shoes, medicine. You know, somebody, one of the uh, town halls uh, asked me, uh, Jefferson, so Ron, what do people spend the money on? I said, first of all, they spend it local. They spend it on essentials, like I just you know, mentioned. They sure as hell aren't going off and buying fancy scarves from Europe. They're using it for what they need to let their families survive as we get into cold weather. 
And so playing out those politics, I'm trying to put myself into in McConnell's shoes. So what I hear you saying is, so for the last months, he's been not only slow walking, but just sort of say, as long as it looks like I'm working on this thing, I can try to blame it on Pelosi. I can try to blame it on Democrats that something isn't happening. At least Fox News will give me the cover for that. And then and then they won't have enough time to gear up all their ads to say, look, you're not getting anything. You're not getting anything. And I can pull the plug right before. And I can pull the plug at about the same time as the Amy Coney Barrett announcement so that that decision doesn't end up being the biggest news story. It's sort of tied for maybe even the second or third biggest news story. Do I have that about right? Let's extrapolate on your point because I think it's a good one. Um, If it had been a good faith effort last night after we were done voting on Amy Barrett, he said the Senate is going to be in on Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday to come up with a coronavirus package that really meets the needs of people who are just you know, up up against it, and you know we're we're seeing particularly in uh, communities of color, among small business people, among seniors, they've just been clobbered uh, by this. And so, if this had been a good faith effort, uh, Jefferson, that's what Mitch McConnell would have done last night. He would have said, "Okay, um, we've had a debate about Amy Barrett. I know that you know one side uh, feels a one, the other side sees it differently." Tomorrow, let's get back to work on uh, what is, in my view, based on the meetings I've had all over the state, the number one concern, which is the Corona package. And your, so let's get to that. Let's get to the confirmation. Your take is that he wanted that to be the linger. He wanted the confirmation of Amy Coney Barrett to be the lingering memory for Republican voters who are turning out to the polls. He didn't want anything else to muddle that message. He wanted that to be the last big thing that was done by his colleagues and his team prior to the election. It's obviously obviously a historic deal. Lots of attention has been spent to the impact it could have on people's health care, what impact it could have on a woman's right to choose. Maybe the impact, not maybe, there's been some attention to the impact it can have on voting rights. Which of those do you think, according to the analysis your people have done, obviously you were in a position to have to vote on this thing. It might not have been that hard to vote for you. Which of those do you think is at greatest risk? And let's start there. Yeah, which do you think is at greatest risk? Well, I I want to mention the process, too. I mean, the nominees in these hearings have clammed up and clammed up over the years more and more. But I think... um, Amy Barrett's is now pretty much the Babe Ruth of saying pretty much nothing in a confirmation hearing. I mean, we asked her again and again about matters that were black letter law. It wasn't anything about interpreting anything about the peaceful transfer of power, these kinds of things. She just refused to answer anything. So um, my final comment last night was I so admired Ruth Bader Um, Ginsburg. She was an icon. She was courageous. And she meant what she said. And she said what she meant. Amy Barrett sure as hell didn't pass that test yesterday. What does this tell us about the process for confirming a Supreme Court justice? What needs to change? or What should at least be considered about changing? And I'm not even talking about the makeup of the court. We can talk about that too. But even just if what we now have is a practice of the only thing that matters to get nominated by a Republican president is if you get the nod from the Federalist Society. And then the only thing that happens is that person sits in a chair and answers no question that is actually related to why the Federalist Society recommended them in the first place. It feels like some of this is just a sham and it feels like a lot more people are becoming aware of that. 
What does this tell you about what should happen with the press? I, 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 I think there need to be revisions in the way these hearings are conducted. I understand completely why a nominee isn't necessarily going to agree with my views on, on, on health care, but why a nominee can literally be allowed to not discuss black letter law that is on the books and whether she has any views on it, I think it's just way over the line. When you think about the merits of this, what this means, not only for collegiality in the Senate, not only in the sort of tit for tat fight over how Senate confirmations for Supreme Court justices should happen, uh, not only in the process for questioning so that the American people or at least U.S. senators can have some idea who they're confirming, what does this mean in your mind for the kinds of decisions that people should be looking forward to or not looking forward to in the coming Supreme Court term? She's going to be, I mean, she's, she's my age, right? I mean, she's just a couple of years older than I am. She's going to be around for a long time, presumably. Yeah. And, and, and look, I mean, first of all, you have to take the president at his word. I mean, he was going to insist on judges that were going to turn back the clock on things like health care and, women's uh, uh, needs and equality. And uh, uh, I think that what's going to happen now is we're going to have the election in a week. I hope that we'll see the country make a strong, powerful sea to shining sea judgment that uh, we want to make a break from the last four years. And then I think, well, see what comes up in the, in the lame duck. I hope we'll be able to get a coronavirus package. Part of what concerns me is, you know, if Mitch McConnell loses decisively, as I'd like to see him, he may say he didn't want to put a penny into coronavirus aid. So uh, my sense is that what we want to do next year is look at all of the rules and all of the policies surrounding the operation of Congress, the operation of the courts, and then we'll go from there. And we will want to talk about that then, and I understand sort of the sequence of that conversation. And it is hard for me, I mean, you you were a law school guy as well, to not think about the Lochner era at the turn of the last century, where you had a Supreme Court that was consistently abolishing and, and, and eliminating social welfare legislation and getting in the way of even addressing the problems of the Great Depression. And had it not been for the change of mind of one of those justices, there would have been a, a Senate response. There would have been a congressional response to the makeup of the Supreme Court. And right now, that's what they've been working on for a long time. The project they've been engaging in is so that your work matters less. So the work of Congress, the work of elected officials matters less because it can be trumped, and I use that word on purpose, by a Supreme Court that is six to three, the most conservative Supreme Court in the history of the country. What am I getting wrong? Nothing. I think that it's one of the reasons why it's going to be time to look at both judicial nominations, the rules of, uh, of how the Senate operates, filibusters, and a variety of issues. And, you know, I will just tell you, I think uh, uh, those following this know that, you know, I protected Oregon's death with dignity uh, law uh, because I made it clear that I would use a talking filibuster, that I would go out on the floor of the Senate. And I don't do it very often, but this was something Oregonians voted on twice. Historically, it's been left to the states. And 
without that um, tool, I think Oregon would not have the death with dignity law today. Yeah. Yeah. And having a, even having the original filibuster, the stand-up filibuster, we actually have to do that thing. That's a huge change. That's what's known as a talking filibuster. Yeah. The, or, or as some purists might say, a real filibuster. So you think now the attention is, and of course, a lot of the attention of the nation is on this historic election. 2020 has been a historically bummer year, and now it is being concluded as years do with an election. Uh, what are you paying most attention to? Are there particular U.S. Senate races that you're watching most closely? Are there other races other than just U.S. Senate and the presidential race that you're watching? What are you attending to that might surprise somebody? Well, I'm very much involved in the Senate races for um, the Western um, candidates. You know, here we're talking about Mark Kelly, Arizona, terrific gun, Hickenlooper of um, Colorado, Steve Bullock of Montana. Um, it's possible if they all win, we could have something like 14, 16 Western senators in the next session. That would give us a real Western juggernaut led by uh, a Vice President Kamala Harris to work on our priorities. The projections I've seen, and they're projections based on polls, and that means it's conjecture based upon you know imperfect data, but suggest that there it's going to be real close between, and, and if there is a change of power in the Senate, it looks like it's going to be a seat or two. Maybe it could be more. What talk about the difference? Some of that's obvious, but what are things that you've been working on? Maybe just very recently, maybe for a long time, that become possible if there is a change of control in the Senate. Where should people be aware of, in terms of your work, about how the makeup of the Senate is going to impact Oregonians and the stuff you've been working on? Well, I think it's going to be very, very different. I mean, I'm the uh, chairman of the Senate Finance Committee. If um, if we take over the Senate. And I believe in growing the economy from the middle out rather than the Trump proposal to kind of trickle down. I mean, Donald Trump believes in two tax codes, you know, one for working, you know, folks and their uh, taxes are mandatory. And the other is for the people at the top who have all these accountants. I believe in one tax code that treats everybody um, fairly. Uh, with respect to recovery, we're gonna have to see where we are in January, but I'll tell you, um, I'm gonna make sure everybody learned the lesson of the Great Recession. And that is you keep your foot on the gas pedal. You don't take your foot off uh, as you begin to have an economic recovery. You gotta stay at it long enough to make sure that the recovery is sustained. And I don't think that was the case in 2009. And then we'll also see a very different role um, in healthcare. Uh, if we're in charge, um, we're going to make sure that you lift the restriction on Medicare so that Medicare can bargain, can negotiate to hold down the um, prices. We're not just going to have an optional tax code for people at the top, and we're not just going to let the big, big pharma have its way. How are you spending election night? It's just days away. Well, we'll, we'll, we'll see. As I, as I say, I just... <laughs> just got home after after three hours you know sleep and I'm gonna get out on the trail uh, um, tomorrow and I'm gonna help Shamia Fagan I think she'd be terrific Secretary of State and uh, help as many candidates as I can well if you got we're doing a little in fact with with candidates including Shamia Fagan we're gonna be doing a little gathering on air if you want to drop by we'd love to have you we'll do it count it, on it that'd, we'll, be, that'd be terrific we'll check in with you on election night pal 
Senator, thank you so much for spending this time with us. Oregon Senior Senator Ron Wyden on the campaign trail right now. To be continued. Be well. Thanks, friend. Hey, folks, if you can, please do give to X-Ray. Go to x-ray.fm. Click the blue donate button. Thanks to Senator Ron Wyden for joining the local, and thank you for listening to the local, your hometown, at about 30 minutes. You got plans election night, by the way? X-Ray is partnering with Portland Forward to host election results live from 7 to 9 p.m. on 107.1 and 91.1, as well as on our YouTube page. We would love to see you there. And thank you, democracy. Talk to you tomorrow.